Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. <clears throat> My name is Pastor Dan McMiller. I'm a member at St. Paul's, but I'm also the executive director of the Office of International Missions. For the last a little over a year and a half before that, the associate executive director, my wife Lisa and I have been members here for about five and a half years. It's a pleasure to be with you and help out in this Bible study. Pastor Thompson called me, I think, on Friday. <laughs> so it's, but it's wonderful to be able to get on this side for a change. I am an administrator. Most of my responsibilities are simply overseeing the work of 120 missionaries around the world. And, 30-some countries and their work in approximately 70 countries. So it's great to put on the pastor hat and, uh, and be with you in the study of the Word of God. Our lessons for next Sunday that we will be looking at have as the overarching theme, the purification of Mary and the presentation of Jesus in the temple. And uh, the lessons clearly have that overarching theme of the temple and drawing near to the temple and the meanings of the word temple. Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Lord God, we thank you that you have drawn near to us through the person of your Son, in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. This occurred in time and was promised of old, believed by those who have gone before us and humbly received by faith. Bless us, O Lord, in our times of tribulation and trial to come before you in humility like Anna and trust your promises. Pray to you with believing hearts and wait upon your answer through your word. Bless our study also this day that we might be strengthened in this faith and giving all praise and glory to you, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven and earth, who has come to redeem and has redeemed his people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, 1 Samuel chapter 1 is a text I've read a lot uh, in the original languages. It's a, it's a text that in, in the Hebrew is easy to read. And so it's one of those uh, parts of scripture that you're asked to read and, and uh, learn the Hebrew grammar by looking at this uh, historical portion of the Old Testament. But we begin with the verse 21 of chapter 1. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever, that child being Samuel. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child <clears throat> I prayed, <clears throat> and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. 
As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he, that is Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. The book of the Bible that we're looking at is named Samuel, significantly so because he is the prophet that oversaw this great transition between the period of the judges and the establishment of the, um, the kingship, the earthly kingship in Israel. So we have Samuel standing between two significant periods in Old Testament history in this book as well. And though this text doesn't really mention Samuel, the background for understanding this text is very important. Hannah, or in some translations it could be Anna. Hannah or Anna was the wife of Elkanah, and we know that Elkanah through the etymology and, and through the um, genealogy was a Levite. And Levites were around all of Israel serving the Lord, dedicated to the Lord's service before the building of the temple in the tabernacle, and they were spread about the, the 12 tribes of Israel. But they had other jobs as well. Not all the priests or Levites um, served continuously before the Lord at any one place, but they were called upon for service uh, throughout their life. And so Elkanah is also a descendant of Moses and Aaron of the tribe of Levi. And that has significance for us because that would make Samuel also a descendant of Levi and have the right of being a priest before the Lord. But he had a special calling. And we say, see that doubly so. First of all, his miraculous birth and God granting the petition to Hannah that she brought before the Lord as Eli the prophet told her she would have this, uh, that God uh, grant her her petition. You might recall that she was in the temple crying because uh, Elkanah's other wife mocked her. She had several sons and Hannah had none. <clears throat> so she cried before the Lord and Eli the prophet, older, saw her probably in the court of the women. He saw her from afar watching the people coming and going Assumed that she was, anybody remember? Drunk. Her lips were moving, she was weeping, but he did not hear her voice. So he was, he approached her to rebuke her for drinking. And she said, that is not the cause of my anguish or my, my actions, rather the prayer that I'm ushering, uh, uttering before the Lord. An overarching theme for this text, this portion of scripture, for our New Testament lesson, for the, uh, in, the, in the Gospel of Luke, and also the epistle to the Hebrews, is one of humility, trial, and temptation. Trials and temptation in the Latin is uh, the word tentatio, tentatio. And we see that the, the, those who were faithful, and clung to the Lord's promises, went through great trials and tribulation in their life, did they not? And God often raises up he or she who is lowly and going through persecution and trial. That's the case for the patriarchs. That's certainly the case for Israel, who had, had to be humbled and brought low from time to time in this fallen world because of its, its, uh, its own sins as a form of punishment. But also... Um, uh, simply because in the way of the world, uh, in a fallen world, those who oppose God's 
kingdom uh, often holds sway. And that's why Christ Jesus came into the world, did he not? To restore us to him and bring us, usher us into his kingdom, even in the midst of trial, great trial and tribulation, and keep us in his kingdom of grace until at last we enter into the kingdom of glory by faith, trusting that we will be raised up like Christ Jesus. So this, this theme of trial and tribulation and humility is the overarching theme. For the people of God in scripture. And here we see it personified in Hannah. And what a faithful person she was. That she would go up to the temple with her husband, a Levite. And go through this rebuke. Go through this suffering. Being childless in this time was seen even as a, as a punishment from God. By those who did not know the Lord's grace and mercy or understand uh, his will for us, often those who were childless were scorned, but yet she clung to the Lord's grace and mercy. And she did it by going where? To the temple. And she prayed. She prayed and prayed and prayed and clung to his word of promise that he is gracious and merciful there in that place, the temple. In Latin America, it was, this was fun to teach. When I, I was a mission, we were missionaries for 14 years in Latin America, and I had to teach future pastors often, and um, for many years on end in, in, in Panama. But I like to talk about tribulation, prayer, and meditation because there, the Latin of Martin Luther was very useful, and I knew they would remember that. Luther said these three things make a theologian. Tentatio, which is trial or tribulation. Oratio, which is prayer. And meditatio, which is meditation, clinging to the word. Tentatio, oratio, meditatio. So I would say to my Hispanic men, remember the three uncles, the three tios, because Spanish uh, for uncle is tio. So they always remembered the three uncles. All I had to say, remember the three uncles as we're looking at a text for Sunday or looking at uh, uh, systematic theology or studying the scripture. Remember the three uncles. Acuérdense de los tres tíos. Tentatio, tribulation, oratio, prayer, meditatio. And so it is also for us that we remember those three essential ingredients for us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ as we suffer, we pray to him, and we cling to the promises of his word. So we see in, uh, in Hannah this tremendous faithfulness. And her, her life really as a, a, a pious, devout Israelite teaching others how to be faithful in the midst of tribulation, even, to, even teaching us today. If you read 1 Samuel, this is in stark contrast to those who were in charge of the temple. Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. She is the theologian. And those who were charged with the worship in the temple were abomination to the Lord. And so it is often in life that those who do not have the call into the ministry can be heartstruck or saddened as they see improper behavior in the church, as they see impiety, as they see unfaithfulness, 
especially today across the world in all denominations by those who pretend to have a higher calling in the church. But she did not let the sins of Hophni and Phinehas turn her away from what? The word of God, the promises of God connected to that, temp to that temple. And so we have, um, and so we have in that, in the temple, another overarching theme. The temple at this time is in Shiloh. It is not, or the tabernacle. It's called the temple in the in the Hebrew text, Echal, but it is a combination of tabernacle and building. That is the tent of tent of meeting and building. The, um, the scholars believe that after spending so many years in Shiloh before. The temple were, was to be built by Solomon in Jerusalem. <clears throat> Some rooms were added. A porch was added. A place for the Levites to live around it. So the, it wasn't the simple tent of meeting with the Holy of Holies in the center. It was, it was probably a bit more elaborate at that, um, at that time and in Shiloh. And what was inside the temple? The Holy of Holies... The Ark of the Covenant, and there we're told in the Old Testament that there is the mercy seat of God. He dwells in the Holy of Holies. His presence filled the Holy of Holies when the tabernacle was consecrated by Moses after building it in the wilderness, and his presence filled that Holy of Holies when the temple was finally constructed in Jerusalem again. There showing his, God showing his faithfulness to his promise that he will be there in that place. Lord of the heavens and earth, the Lord of hosts, creator of heaven and earth. But he deigned it important to mercifully dwell there for the chosen children of Israel so that they could preserve the promise, a greater promise than being just their savior, the promise of being the savior of all mankind. As Abraham was told in, in Genesis 12 and throughout his wanderings and culminating in Genesis 15, verse 6, that he, through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And that was preserved. That promise of grace and mercy was preserved among the children of Israel at the temple with his presence in the Holy Holies above the Ark of the Covenant, which was called his mercy seat. And Hannah believed that. In the midst of her suffering, in spite of her lowly estate, she believed that. She clung to it. Why? Because there she had God's command to go there and his promise that he'd be there. A command and promise. There's a book I read about 20 years ago. I picked it up in one of our seminary bookstores, the one at Fort Wayne. And it was written by a... a it's written by a now-deceased Old Testament scholar, a Jewish scholar, a rabbi, not a believer in Christ, about the Exodus and the establishment of Old Testament Israel through the Exodus. This is a really nice read. It's, it's a book, um, looking for my notes here, I don't see my notes here, but the guy's name is Sarna, S-A-R-N-A, S-A-R-N-A, Sarna. And I'll get that, uh, it'll pop up in my notes, I'm kind of going out of order here. But he talks about the importance in the Old Testament of the establishment of God's presence among the children of Israel. And as I was reading through this, 
He uses the exact same language as Martin Luther uses. He, uh, in Luther's greatest works, whether it's on the Lord's Supper or his, his great confession concerning the Lord's Supper or his other huge uh, writing against the heavenly prophets, Luther says in both of these writings, and it's repeated in the Book of Concord in, the large, in his large catechism, that we are to go where God has connected his command and promise. And here this rabbi was saying the exact same thing. And it's a major theme in the book. Israel was given a command to draw near to God in the temple. And God promised to deliver his grace and mercy to his people in that temple. And everything in the Old Testament revolves around their recognition of this fact. If you go to 1 Kings 12, you see that Jeroboam... The man chosen to take ten tribes away from Rehoboam, son of Solomon. In 1 Kings 12, Jeroboam did not believe this. He didn't follow that mandate of God to, to, to go to the temple in Jerusalem and trust his promise of grace and mercy there. Even though he had the northern ten tribes, he thought, well, God, can't, God won't be faithful to me. If I go down there, my people will draw near to the Old Testament, uh, to the, the lower two tribes. So he didn't trust God's promise. And he established new places of worship, new sacrifices, new ceremonies, and new priesthood in multiple places, Dan and Beersheba and other Bethel and high places around the northern kingdom. And sacrifices were occurring all over the place. And as you read through the book of Kings then, every Israelite king at his death says at his death, his epitaph is, he followed in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. He followed in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And those sins are not drawing near to God where he had his command and promise. And Sarna talks about this beautifully. And so I thought, man, he must have read Luther. But no, he didn't read Luther. He read the same Old Testament that Luther wrote. It's clearly there that all of the Old Testament revolves around trusting God's promise, promises connected to the Old Testament temple and God's mercy delivered there. So we see, we see in, first, in um, first Samuel, Hannah's wonderful faithfulness, not only in returning to the temple and, and praying uh, and, and trusting God's grace and mercy there delivered to his mercy seat, but then what does she promise to do? If given a son, to turn him over to the Lord. To give him up. Those of you who have longed for a child and, and, and or struggled through that, that, uh, that ache in your arms as you wait for that child to be born and, and maybe be disappointed for years on end, you know how she must have longed for this, longed for this child, but yet she gave him up at three years of age, approximately, that's the estimation because in Old Testament times, they typically weaned at about three years of age and gave him up the service in the temple, and he lived there with Eli and witnessed the atrocities of Hophni and Phinehas as they did every abominable thing, every abominable thing imaginable in the presence of the Lord near the tabernacle in Shiloh and were subsequently judged for it along with Eli, and that brought Samuel to his place. But as a young man, he had to witness that, and his mother would come up to the temple with Elkanah every year and bring him clothing and the sacrifices that were appropriate for the festival, usually probably the Feast of Booths, time of um, the harvest, 
and gifts were brought for those serving there, including Eli and his family, which was, again, abused by Eli's sons. So we have in Samuel, uh, the life of Samuel, and more importantly, the wife of Hannah. This prefiguration of uh, our Lord Jesus Christ coming to the temple. He too to be humbled for us and live under the law. And we have in, in Hannah a type of Mary who humbly uh, went before, uh, submitted herself to the Lord's will. And uh, the, word, the name Samuel means heard of the Lord. Uh, Shaman in Hebrew is to hear, El is God, and this is the passive participle, Shemua, Shemua El, Shemua El. And when you put them together, the, it turns into Shemuel. One of those two vowels drops off. So Shemuel in, in English, of course, Samuel, heard of the Lord, heard of God. Do we have any questions on 1 Samuel chapter 2? the history surrounding that, or any comments about that Old Testament, uh, the important theme of the, the temple during the Old Testament, its transition to Jerusalem, etc. I'll repeat it for the radio if you have a question or comment. Very good. We go on now to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. We read, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Christ, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. <clears throat> and here let us note, the offspring of Abraham is clearly more than Israel. Abraham was told that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. And Galatians chapter 3 has all those who have faith in Christ are children of Abraham. That's verse 6 and 7. And then verse 16, or is it 26, all those who have faith in Christ are children of God. Certainly, therefore, also children of Abraham. And of course, Paul in Galatians is emphasizing <clears throat> that our spiritual <clears throat> uh, place in the kingdom of God is by faith and not by the flesh. Verse 17. <clears throat> therefore, he, the promised Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And there we see that theme of tribulation and trial of those who are of his flock, who draw near to him, and of Christ Jesus himself. He took on human flesh that he too might go through great trial and tribulation and thereby make propitiation, make payment, make redemption for the sins of the world. Samuel, between the time of the judges and the time of the kings, very significant role, of course, in the children of Israel 
was a sort of prophet, priest, and king. It was a theocracy, much like the time of Moses. God ruled through his appointed servant. And you might recall when the children of Israel kept hearkening to Samuel, give us a king like all those around us, the Canaanites. Give us a king so that we can be like them. And today, too, we still have a lot of people in the church saying, I want to be like, why can't we be like, why can't we accept this? Why can't we accept that? Why all these rules? But give us a king like the people of Canaan, the people surrounding us. And, of course, God said to Samuel there in that text, they are not rejecting you, but they're rejecting me. Samuel was a prophet. He was a priest, a Levite, offering sacrifices for the people. But he was also a sort of king, a ruler. So we have in the person of Samuel a, a type of Christ. And uh, Christ Jesus came to be the, the prophet, priest, and king for all mankind. All of these Old Testament prophets foreshadowed his coming, as did the sacrifices, all that they did in, in harmony with uh, the Levitical law, whether it was the ceremonial law or other, or, or other law, the civil law as well. This prefigured the kingdom of God and prefigured Christ's presence among us, not only while he walked on earth as a king, a humble king, a lowly king, whose throne ended up being Calvary with a crown of thorns, but now a king who rules throughout the universe as the eternal king of heaven and earth and governs his church today through grace and mercy and his means of grace. But we have in, in Samuel a type of prophet, priest, and king, and this is the focus of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is that priest and himself the sacrifice who went before, um, went before the throne of God to make propitiation for our sins. And that is a common theme, of course, throughout the New Testament, is it not? First John 2, 2, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for your sins, and not only your sins, but the sins of all the world. First Peter 2, he bore our sins in his body on the tree that, so, that he might, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Or 1 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their sins against them. Here in the book, in this epistle to the Hebrews, it makes the point that he had to be tempted in every way, partake of the same things, so that he could be the appropriate sacrifice for us. The appropriate sacrifice for us in our stead and also for God's just wrath against sin. God could not deny himself. God demanded perfection. Leviticus says, be perfect as the Lord your God is perfect, right? And Jesus even repeats that in Matthew. You're to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. God's demands of the law are for perfect holiness and righteousness because if we are to stand in the presence of a holy God, we too must be holy. And Christ came to make us holy, to give us that right to fulfill the righteousness that we cannot fulfill, to be that perfect God-man in our stead, from his conception until now and throughout all eternity, but in his work of, of uh, redemption for us. And therefore, truly being our sacrifice, being flesh and bones, tempted in all ways, the letter to the Hebrews, even as us, yet without sin. A true man, but, he also, but yet also true God. 
And so as Jesus did go, uh, completed all things for us in our stead, he never laid down, laid aside that, that divinity. He never laid aside that humanity. We have this, this incredible teaching of, of the, the person of Christ, two natures and one person, fully God yet fully man, even on the cross, as he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even there, true God and true man. He did not lay aside his divinity. And so we can say, Mary is the mother of God. And we can say, God died on the cross in the person of Christ. And so it's, it's something that goes beyond our understanding, but it is essential for us to cling to this historical fact. It's presented to us in scripture. Today, it's in vogue in European, what's left of European Christianity. It's in vogue to talk not so much about the atonement, the work of Christ, his sacrificial death on the cross. Why? Well, it's kind of given up for a certainty. You can't really trust the Bible. You can't be certain that Jesus was born of a virgin, for heaven's sakes. That's totally irrational. You can't be certain that he never sinned. You can't even be certain that he rose again from the dead. But we do have this good news that God forgives us. Now, there are those within European Christianity who indeed believe in the historicity of Christ's conception, miraculous conception of the virgin, his perfect life, and his work of redemption. But in that context of European Christianity, the focus is only on the work of, of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Let's not talk about Jesus. That doesn't get you too far. So here we have the importance of clinging to the historicity of the text, and it's grounded not only in the person of Christ, but all the way back into the Old Testament and the miracles of Christ of, of God with his people Israel back into the, the life of Hannah and Samuel. We have, as uh, Luther loved the illustration of, if we, uh, of the balance in the marketplace. We lived in Latin America, and we had these old-fashioned balances in the marketplace. And on one side, you put the weights, and on the other side, you put the produce. And uh, not even the sliding bar. You had the, the 100 grams or 200 grams or a half kilo or, or a full kilo on one side, and that's what people ordered. That's what they got. And you had the balance. And Luther said, and knew the marketplace well, as he walked to uh, the, uh, the castle church or walked to St. Mary's from his home in Wittenberg. And, and uh, he did try to go the back way now and then to avoid some things, but he saw the marketplace in his town of Wittenberg and throughout Germany. And he said, if we put all the sins of the world on one side of that balance of justice, that balance goes way down to the ground, doesn't it? All sins of every person who ever lived for all time. We put the death of man on the other side of the scale. That scale is not budging. That scale will not budge. And he said this over against Calvin, who said that God actually, on the cross, Jesus did not die. I mean, excuse me, the, 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 uh, the divine nature of Christ did not die. Only the human nature suffered and died. God can't die. You have to take God the, God's divine nature away from Christ in that time of his death. And Luther said, well, I, he, he's a poor savior for me then. In fact, he needs a savior. 
But we, if the Son of God died, true God, as Paul says in Colossians, in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form, and you put that on the other side of the scale, it sinks down in all of us, rise up to heaven through his victory over our sin and death. John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. In Romans 5, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ, Christ, died for the ungodly, Christ. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And so in Romans, uh, excuse me, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, this same letter to the Hebrews, therefore we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we possess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Oratio, prayer, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In our trial, in our tentatio, we approach through prayer and cling to the promises of the words. There you have the tentatio, oratio, and meditatio. As the Old Testament temple had command and promise, so today the word of Christ and his sacraments have command and promise. So, and that's why, we, that's why we baptize. That's why we have the Lord's Supper. That's why we preach the word. That's why we repeat the words of institution. That's why we use the words Christ gave us in the baptism. We have the command to do so, but we also have the promise that when that word goes forth, it is Christ's word and it is powerful. By the way, I, I found the name of that fellow. If you want to order it on eBay, or, or it's Nahum Sarna, N-A-H-U-M Sarna, S-A-R-N-A. It's a great short insight on not only how Israel had a faithful, was to have a faithful worship, and he's so good on emphasizing the temple and the tabernacle, but then he gives you a description also of how the, the people in the surrounding cultures of Palestine had, um, had similar understandings, but they were always, always uh, absent of grace, absent of mercy, and limited in, in, in power, their deity limited in power and sphere of influence. Great contrast with that of the Old Testament uh, message regarding Yahweh. So, any questions on Hebrews chapter 2? And again, summarizes this, this need of the temple, Christ's entrance into the temple. For comments. Yes? Well, yeah. This is a new, unfortunately, this goes back into the late 1800s, late 1800s, with textual criticism and the denial of Scripture as being inspired. 
And um, the, um, those who would call themselves Orthodox Christians will still say that there's forgiveness, that God is love, God is merciful. But that's it. So it turns out to be a wink-wink, God's going to overlook you. And God, Jesus is this good guy who's going to embrace you. Just show some, but, but the cost, Luther also, over and over again in his commentary, talks about the cost of our salvation. This, uh, this is not cheap. This is real. And it's anchored in, in history and time and flesh and blood of Christ. So, and I'm, these are the good guys that are, I mean, that's about as good as it gets. Now, we have our small partner churches throughout Europe. We have a small partner church in Germany, but they're struggling with some of this, even among some of their theologians. I hope this thing, that probably went on the radio, but they have some of that, but that's kind of a common, uh, uh, commonly known issue for our partner church. That, 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 you know, this comes up and down because they're surrounded by it. We have a faithful partner church, uh, emerging partner in Latvia, Lithuania, Finland, uh, uh, Ukraine, and our Russian partner churches, new churches being planted in Romania, and the Czech Republic, we have partners. So we have, and when I talk about Europe, we do have this po these pockets of, of faithful Lutherans, but their battle is huge. Um, we too have our battles. We too have our battles. It's really fun in, in, in Europe, we have what's called the network of young Lutheran theologians and a young, and that's really, um, it's a term used for lay people. Network of young Lutheran theologians, if you're, and so they have a gathering once a year and about 350 young people from our church partners or emerging partners in the Scandinavian countries, in the Baltic countries, Russia, Romania, etc. England, Germany, and they gather together and the last couple times it's been in Prague where we have our regional office, and there you have 300 excited young people from ages 18 to 30-something, couples or single. And, and by golly, they are just brilliant. And it's neat to see like 11, 12, 13 different countries all speaking in Bible studies and in fellowship time, all speaking in English with perfect English. And, and uh, so we, there's hope there. There's hope. And I, get the I have the pleasure of meeting some of these young people and then encouraging them to consider the ministry or studying in the United States if possible. Or now we're trying to establish a, a real good seminary in Latvia that's English, so they can have a common language. We have a seminary in Oberursel in Germany, which is our partner church, and uh, Russian seminaries. And, uh, but we're, the Latvian seminary is going to have a Latvian and an English curriculum. We're in the process of that. Supporting those... Those Hannahs <laughs> and those uh, faithful few in the midst of opposition. Okay, Luke chapter 2. Looks like we're going to do the whole section. So, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, that's the Holy Family, brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. <laughs> Isn't that something? The Lord in the flesh being presented to Yahweh. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Do you remember the context of this? And to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, 
And also, if you had the wealth, it could be uh, a pair of lambs. But the provision was made for those who were poor. And I suppose uh, Jerusalem was only so big to have, you know, hundreds of thousands of lambs coming in Jerusalem at that time. Might be. So they, the two turtle doves made it a little bit more manageable. It's amazing to see how in Jerusalem so much of the economy revolved around these sacrifices and, and how that drove Jerusalem into being such a central city when it was really kind of poorly situated, but all around the temple was a huge uh, a commerce. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And the Lord's Christ, in, in, in the Greek, that would be the Yahweh's anointed one, the Old Testament name for, when you see the word Lord, it's, it's uh, perhaps in the Greek, it's kurios, but it's, um, it is uh, reference to the Trinity, to... to um, the three persons of the Trinity, and that's going back to Exodus, uh, where, where God said to uh, Moses, uh, uh, when he says, who do I say he sent me? He says, uh, I am who I am. And uh, so the name for Yahweh, or the Lord, is he who is. And they use the third person, he who is. I really wish we used that title for God. He who is. It says so much, does it not? He is life. He is being. He is a source of being. He gives you being. He has, he has all of existence in his hand. He who is. It says a lot more than the name Lord. And Messias is the word for anointed one. Why anointed one? Well, Jesus was anointed to be what? King. He anointed kings. Jesus is king. Every time you hear the word anointed, think of kingship. We're standing in the presence of the king here. We're receiving the blood of the king poured out for his subjects. The anointed king who will rule on his throne for all eternity. Verse 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law... Uh, Simeon took Jesus, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now, it's hard for me not to say it like it's in our liturgy, right? Lord, now, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word for my eyes have seen thy salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. There again, you have all nations. All nations. This is a profound understanding by Simeon. Because it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And his father and his mother of Mary marveled at what was said about him, about Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There you have the great tentatio, right? Tribulation. We have over our piano at home the painting 
It's just a, a print because the original is worth millions. <laughs> but it's a reduced print from uh, a museum in, in Madrid. And it, and it has, a, it's a picture, a painting of Jesus being brought down from the cross. And there's Mary, white and pallid like a, like someone who has died, literally fainting in the arms of the people around her. We can't imagine the suffering that Mary would go through standing at the foot of the cross. Now we hold, uh, now we're in verse, let's see, let's go to um, verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years. Note, it doesn't say how old Simeon was, but he was longing for, he was waiting for the redemption, the propitiation for the redemption of Israel. So we imagine he is at least a very mature man. But Anna was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, most likely married very young. Israel wasn't uncommon to be married at 15 years of age. In fact, it was quite common. And then as a widow until she was 84. Now, the Greek there could be translated, and then as a widow for 84 years. So if you add 15 and 7, you get 22 and 84. 22 and 84 is 106. Um, and she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. From what we can tell, uh, the, 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 the temple did close at night. So she returned to whoever her abode was. She probably had family there in, in, in Jerusalem and stayed with them when it was provided for had given her daily bread and a place to sleep. But she, every waking hour and every moment of the temple being open for the people, for the women uh, uh, to enter into the court of the women, she was there. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of, of Jerusalem. She's not alone. She and Simeon are not alone. But what we have in Simeon is a profound explanation of what this is that it's salvation for all people. And it's a salvation from sin, from brokenness, from the fallenness of this world that they knew well. They knew, this, they knew the Torah. They knew the sins of their people. They knew the sins of the people around them. They saw the atrocities of the pagan uh, nations, but yet Simeon prayed for them and rejoiced in Christ's coming to deliver them as well. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, that is the Holy Family, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew, became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So, Jesus had been circumcised. We read that in verse 21. But this is, there's two things going on here. One is the purification of Mary. And the other is, is presenting Jesus before the temple as all firstborn males had to be. Um, and uh, uh, a sacrifice made for him that was dedicated to the, um, uh, the support of the Levites. It was sacrificed for his sins, but also a sacrifice uh, 
appointed uh, to um, exonerate the firstborn male from, from full-time service before the king, from subscription into his service. So every firstborn male, no matter what the tribe, did this. And Jesus is of the tribe of, not Levi, but Judah, the tribe of kings. So we, these words bring to mind Galatians 4, 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus is submitted to the Old Testament law. Jesus continued to fulfill the Old Testament law. Jesus, in every way, with his father, his earthly father, Joseph, overseeing it, with his mother Mary, she too had to be purified. He was ob obliged to it, and, and they kept that law. And Jesus, of course, with uh, his um, divine nature, kept it perf perfectly. In Exodus, we, we, you can see the, in Exodus 13, those who want to look at this can, can see the reference to this. I'll, I'll read it. It's, it's not too long. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Now, that was in the wake of the tenth plague, the killing of the firstborn of all of the Egyptians, including the Pharaoh, animal and, and male. And then skipping to verse 11, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as, the, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. So Jesus is uh, fulfilling that Old Testament obligation from Exodus 13. Every firstborn of a donkey. You'll show, you shall redeem with a lamb. You don't want a donkey sacrifice. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us up out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Pretty demanding. Pretty demanding. And in Numbers 18, it says that you can redeem them with five coins of, of 10 shekels or 10 grams of silver each. So there's a little bit more detail in the book of Numbers. So uh, I don't know what your translations say, but in, in uh, reference to Simeon, some notes about the text. Uh, it, the word there is righteous. Simeon was righteous. Um, some some uh, translations say upright. Uh, and that, that implies something different. When the scripture speaks of a righteousness among people, it's a righteousness that comes from outside. And upright implies that he's, he's obedient. But the, the, the word there is more that forensic, gifted, spoken righteousness that is given to man as it was to um, uh, Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, when it says he believed the Lord in his faith his belief was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was a sinner, but God declared him righteous because he believed. 
That's the type of righteousness of Simeon. As I said earlier, they were likely in the court of the women. There were other families there. They had to have been in the court of the women because Mary was there or no closer than the court of the women. And Anna drew near. Uh, but imagine Mary and Joseph as they ponder a bit more with this, uh, this baby 40 days old, the meaning of his birth for all mankind. We've talked about the tribulation of Hannah, the tribulation of Mary or Tentatio and of the believers, but the greatest tribulation is that of Jesus. His tribulation, being subject to the law for us, tempted in every way, yet without sin, submitted to the attacks of the devil, bearing our sin in his body. This he did in perfect obedience. He prayed, oratio. He meditated, meditatio, on the will of his father. He, he and his father's will were one so that he could be our real savior in time, here and now, no longer in the temple made by hands, but in himself before the Father in heaven. And as he comes to you in his word, in the washing of regeneration, of baptism, and in his very body of blood, that's a real savior. This isn't just some good news that's because God overlooked your sin. This is a savior who bore your sin in his body on the cross. This is not a man-made philosophy. But Jesus, in his life, suffering and death and resurrection, and now in his word and sacrament that have his command and promise is truly here for us. Like the temple, the church has a place, but the place is connected to the, the person of Jesus. And that person of Jesus directs us to his word and sacrament. In the church, he takes our real sins, our real suffering, our real shortcomings, guilt, shame, anger, bitterness, hidden atrocities, and visible weaknesses. There in his word and sacraments, we have the blessed exchange. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And real palpable atonement is delivered to you for your sins. And the bread, which is his body, and the wine, which is blood. This is more real and visceral than the sacrifice of lambs or turtle doves. Jesus' body and blood given up on Calvary are poured into you for your forgiveness and adoption into the kingdom of God now and forever. Any questions or comments? I think we're right on time here. But we can go over. Thank you for your attention. Pleasure to be with you. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Lord, as we meditate upon your word and come into your presence for forgiveness and for the gift of your, your word that nurtures us and your sacrament that pours into us the very body and blood of your son, keep us humble, O oh Lord. Humble us gently, humble us daily, but keep us like Hannah, ever clinging to your promises. Hear our prayer, O oh Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen. God bless your day.